Dear friends, in the 73 episodes recorded so far, the majority have featured a mythical story from either a written or a film source. Today, I want to experiment a mythical story told through the medium of a video game, one of the most universally acclaimed of all time. The Legend of Zelda franchise is probably the most beloved video game series to date, and certainly one of the longest running, spanning a whopping 37 years, uh, which is right up there with Super Mario. In the video gaming halls of fame, Zelda is certainly considered mythical. And yet, despite over 29 titles, the basic storyline of each game has hardly changed. Whether you're playing the 1986 Legend of Zelda or Tears of the Kingdom in 2023, you pretty much know what you're getting into when you awaken as Link and step out into the fallen world of Hyrule. And yet, our culture still revels in being plunged into this storyline. Why? What instinct or desire has the Zelda series tapped into that makes this game so timeless? Hopefully we can answer some of these questions by the end of the episode. Before we begin, I want to address a potential elephant in the room. Perhaps some of you may be concerned about the morality of exploring a video game on a Catholic podcast. After all, aren't we trying to get our loved ones off those consoles and back into real life? If this is your objection, I first of all want to acknowledge that concern, for it also led me to write an academic paper on the pastoral response to video game addiction in teenagers, which I will leave a link to in this episode if you are interested. However, this episode is interested in a far more fundamental question. Is it possible that a game like Zelda can open a person up to the things of God? We know that great works of art and music and literature and Lord of the Rings and Disney can bring people to an experience of God, which is what this podcast is all about. Why not then an interactive game like Zelda? After all, who do these games inspire us to be that we are unable to be in our current circumstances? I pose these questions because my past experiences with Zelda has been overwhelmingly positive and as I'll share a little later, quite spiritually nourishing. As way of prologue, I want to quote an article from the Word on Fire website entitled Video Games and Culture, written by Father Blake Britton. In it he says, quote, In the end, what we millennials and post-millennials want is the real world, not the artificial world. Our wanderings in the lands of Minecraft and the mountains of Skyrim are a crying out for reality, not a rejection of it. We long to witness the breathtaking beauty of creation, soar into the heights of authentic heroism, and experience the life-giving dynamism of true freedom. We want reality. This is the rallying cry of our generation. You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. So, this episode will be divided into three features of the Zelda games worthy of spiritual commentary. 
The first will be on the significance of the beautiful enchanted settings within Zelda, discussing the notion of escapism in both the negative and positive sense. The second section will be about the consistent hero's journey storyline found in every Zelda game. And thirdly, we'll look at the notion that every Zelda game rewards those who slow down and wander off the well-beaten track. Let's begin. We start with the actual geographic lands of Zelda, which for most of the games is set in the Kingdom of Hyrule. Now, if you know anything about Zelda, you know that this world is incredibly beautiful, charming and mysterious, rich with its own lore and history. It's the type of world you'd happily escape into, which sadly is a word that is largely frowned upon today. After all, isn't escapism always a flight from reality, shirking the world of responsibility and chores and taxes and suffering? It certainly can be, and if a game or a sport or movie or anything is not enjoyed in moderation, it can lead to unhealthy escapism. But there is another type of escapism which is always a good thing. For example, when someone has been kidnapped and yearns to escape from their kidnappers and return home, you'd agree that this type of escape is a positive thing, right? For this type of escapism frees one from imprisonment and leads one back into reality, the fullness of reality, rather than away from it. And I'm going to suggest that Zelda's gorgeous worlds can inspire its players to do just that. Let me explain. Have you ever wondered why the landscapes that populate our fairy tales are particularly satisfying to dream about and to recreate? Why are taverns and cobblestone streets, castles with flags, royal crests, dark forests, windmills, horse-drawn carriages and majestic sailing ships so satisfying? I've pondered on this for a long time and I think I have an inkling of the following answer. Fairy tale lands help us reminisce about the worldview of our medieval ancestors when a. our machines and buildings were maximally in harmony with the natural world and b. part of that harmony was the recognition that the world was still a spiritual place, enchanted, imbued with unseen powers. Worlds like those in Zelda then capture this harmonious dance between human agents and spiritual agents. Such an enchanted view of the world is of course consistent with our theology, for we believe that our world is enchanted, charged with the Holy Spirit, populated with beings like angels and demons. We believe that there does exist what the Celtic people call thin places, particular locations in the world which are more open to divine presence, like the great fairy fountains in Zelda, the springs of power, wisdom, courage and of course the Temple of Time. Hence the worlds we love in Zelda are not just charming, they actually reflect back to us the real reality of the spiritual realm, a realm that can often be suffocated by city living and our technological monopoly. This is why the Zelda games encourages positive escapism, because Zelda worlds are more true to reality than the flat, grey city life of office cubicles and textbooks and screens and commercialism. These so-called fairy tale lands stir up a desire for more, because even in a fallen world, our souls intuitively know that there is more. 
What's particularly striking about Zelda is that even though the worlds that Link sets out to save are fallen, some quite dramatically, as in Majora's Mask, where there is a moon hurtling towards Termina, they never lose their original goodness. The Zelda series is, in the end, an optimistic series, with landscapes that still retain their original glory, trustworthy characters, a hopeful storyline, and, of course, a divine princess that remains forever beyond corruption, even against the darkest spells. You know, what I've been sharing so far is as much testimony as it is theology. To illustrate, when I was playing The Breath of the Wild three years ago over my summer break, my love and appreciation of Mother Mary deepened significantly, especially regarding spiritual warfare. When I was playing, Mary was symbolized beautifully in the Princess Zelda character, who for like most of the game was literally holding back the devil from breaking out into Hyrule, while I, the chief hero, was just waking up and picking mushrooms and finding my place in the salvation story. Through her protection and prayers, Princess Zelda, like Our Lady of Fatima, encourages us to wake up, turn around, and to fight the good fight. Similarly, Breath of the Wild connected me profoundly with the communion of saints and what Catholics teach about the saints. There are these four ancient spirits you meet along the quest, heroes named Daruk, Mipha, Rivali, and Obosa who not only guide you practically, but spiritually journey alongside you in the form of unique abilities, such as healing and providing a shield defense. These four heroes also aid you in the final, final fight against Ganon, lowering his health dramatically and pretty much honoring your befriending of them. Like the character of Princess Zelda, these saintly heroes are given to assist your quest, rather than to replace your quest, in the same way that Mary and the saints are given by Christ to aid us in our quest to sanctity. And in the month or so of playing this game, all of this theology became so much more real and tactile and felt in my very bones, permanently altering my relationship with the saints in real life, something that has continued to this day. Fun fact, my real life equivalent of the four saintly heroes are Saint Teresa Lisieux, Saint John Paul II, Saint Joseph and Mother Mary with each also offering a unique spiritual charism for my holiness. And fun fact too, much of the inspiration of episode 13 of this podcast on Moana and the communion of saints traces its origins back to this moment of playing Zelda in my summer holidays. Part 2, the storyline of the hero's journey. In earlier Myth Pilgrim episodes, you may remember me referring to something called the Hero's Journey, a particular storyline that like every great myth across like, every ancient culture conformed to. Joseph Campbell, the sociologist who discovered this mythical storyline, summarizes the Hero's Journey as follows. Quote, A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero returns from his adventure with the power to bestow treasures on his fellow men. End quote. This pattern sounds familiar, right? And rightly so, for our era's greatest stories like Star Wars, The Lord of the Rings, The Hunger Games, Gladiator, and The Lion King all conform to this pattern. And as you'd agree, these stories are particularly satisfying. 
Well, those of you who've played Zelda will recognize that for 37 years, this game pretty much follows the hero's journey formula. In the Zelda world, it would be expressed as something like this. The hero, Link, is awakened from some variation of sleep or unconsciousness, where he is called out of a comfortable place into a mysterious quest. He is told his kingdom is in peril and that he alone was destined to save it through the defeating of some iteration of Ganon, the series' chief baddie. Ably armed with an array of weapons, skills, hearts and the magical princess Zelda, he defeats Ganon, recovers what he's stolen and restores peace back to his kingdom, the Ed. That's the basic storyline of Zelda, and it hasn't really changed, despite tremendous leaps in graphics, music, and game mechanics. And as far as I know, Nintendo sees no reason at all to change this formula, because it is the most satisfying storyline of all time. Why? Because the hero's journey perfectly parallels the spiritual journey. We too start our spiritual journey like Link, somewhat asleep, half-living, comfortable but unconscious. But then there is an awakening of sorts. Like God did with Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Mary and Paul, he himself calls us out of our place of comfort onto a spiritual quest. Like in Zelda, our own world has fallen into peril, for the kingdom of darkness has overtaken it. We too must wage war against the monsters and corruptions of sin, vice and selfishness. How do we do this? Well, weapons, boomerangs and bombs certainly help, wise teachers help, and the map certainly helps. But this is where the imagery of Zelda gives us a real kicker. Link's spiritual growth, if you like, is measured by him slowly increasing his hearts, which in the game acts as his hit points, his HP. There is simply no way he can survive the increasing challenges in the story unless his heart count also increases. I particularly love this imagery because the hero's journey for us Christians is somewhat measured in the same way, our heart count. While our progress can be partially measured by how much we overcome sin, how faithfully we pray, the scriptures remind us that progress is ultimately measured by our capacity to love. Love of God, love of neighbour and love of self is the only true measure of holiness. St. Teresa of Avila makes that clear. Love determines what obstacles we can tackle, what circumstances we can navigate, and how resilient we are before we are KO'd by the devil. Okay, I'm making a point of this love heart thing because personally, it's one of the most profound reminders when I play a Zelda game. What is Lawrence's heart count? As someone who is naturally gifted in a few areas, it's so tempting to treat my achievements like some sort of badge of holiness, when in reality, without love, I'm just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, as Paul tells us. Without love, I'm only Link, bogged down by heavy shields and gear and cooking pots, but with like three hearts, <laughs> knocked out by the first pocoblin I see. Yet when I look at Christ on the cross, he had nothing on him, literally, but he did have rows and rows and rows of hearts, proverbially, love in abundance. May we follow the model of Christ then, love incarnate, whose sacred heart proved to withstand the Ganon of all Ganons, the cross, and to win for us eternal life, the greatest treasure of all.
If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. Part 3. Rewarding those who take the path less trodden. Zelda is never a game you want to play quickly or speedrun. I always marvel at the fact that, in Breath of the Wild, you can technically go straight for the final boss fight in Hyrule Castle from the start. While the odds of surviving the castle and beating Ganon are pretty much zero, the fact of the matter is no serious player would want to go straight for the end game, because the real charm of the game lies elsewhere, in the discovery of all that lies hidden in the world. See, there's the surface world that you explore, then there's the hidden world that you discover. Rooms, shrines, items, and parrots that play accordions. It was arguably Zelda 1, all the way back in 1986, that made hidden rooms such an iconic part of adventure gaming ever since. Treasure is much more valuable when it's obtained by slowing down, noticing, and going off the main road. This truth is greatly paralleled in the spiritual journey. The greatest spiritual treasures are unearthed by us slowing down, diverting ourselves away from the rat race of the world, and taking the path less travelled. Heroism is to go via the untrodden path, the one that no one dares to venture upon. Saint John of the Cross puts it this way, To become what you are not, you must travel via a way that you are not. I'll say that again. To become what you are not, you must travel via a way that you are not. In other words, to actually grow in the spiritual life, you must travel a path you are not currently on, to go via a way you are not. The Legend of Zelda encourages this discipline for its players, slowing down their pace significantly, but also rewarding them richly. Some of the greatest finds in Zelda Heart containers, Korok seeds, maps, keys, the Master Sword, the Hylian Shield can only be found by those who patiently look for them. And significantly, this dynamic doesn't change in the midst of even the most dangerous lairs and dungeons, for in fact it becomes even more true. The game particularly rewards the brave, those who are willing to stay within the zone of peril and to seek after the treasure that can only be found there. Again, the parallels with the spiritual journey are tantamount. For that which we most need to find is always found in the place we least desire to look. That's Carl Jung. It takes a brave soul to explore the dungeons of our own brokenness, the lairs of our own shame, and to face the dungeon bosses of our greatest fears. And yet, that is precisely where the greatest treasures are to be found. Treasures like healing, identity, truth, freedom. While our fast-paced world offers self-help books, numbing noise and pop psychology, the Christian quietly diverts and goes another way, the way of the cross, the way we dare not tread, except in following the one who has first walked that way himself. So, at the end of this special episode, what spiritual yearning 
has the Legend of Zelda tapped into? What has it been heralding to a culture so depleted of Christian spirituality? Perhaps it's the call to awaken from the fog of mediocrity and to set out on the journey of sanctity, the real hero's journey. To heed the call of God to fight the good fight, to rescue the real kingdom from the shroud of darkness, to ally ourselves with the weapons of love, for only love can withstand and conquer the powers of hell. Behind the journey of Link and Princess Zelda lies the real spiritual journey. And while this journey remains untold within our churches and culture, The Legend of Zelda may very well be the storyline that so many of us need. Is it an orthodox way of telling our story? Probably not. Is it necessary to rediscover our story? Absolutely. And just remember that sometimes the greatest treasures can only be found via the way less travelled. And on that note, dear pilgrims, I bid you well. Journey forth, take care, and God bless.